Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Greetings. It's another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I changed up my intro there because it's a slightly different lineup today. So I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. With me is Catherine Rubino from Above the Law because Ellie could not be here. So she's playing the role of Ellie today. I play it just as well as he does. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so, I mean, you need to speak up a little bit. (laughs) I need to start screaming and it's what you're trying to tell me. That's what I'm saying. But Mm. no, so we're here today uh, because Ellie couldn't be with us. He's ill and we hope him a speedy recovery from whatever it was. I think he said Ebola. Yeah, he said Ebola. He actually said both Ebola and typhus in various communications today. Interesting, okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so... I did read an article like literally yesterday that typhus is actually making a comeback in America, which is just terrifying. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So on that cheery note, so what um, What really are we planning to talk about today? Because we, you know, had to do some quick change up of what the plan was. Longtime listeners know there's rarely a plan, so you understand <laughs> that was a lie. But if there's anyone new joining us, we didn't want to spoil it for them. Yeah, uh, I mean, well, listen, it's uh, your show. I'm here to talk about whatever, but there were some uh, diversity rankings and such that came out last week. I thought we might want to chit-chat about that a little bit. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so for those of you who may not be familiar with the Mansfield Rule, um, it's a project started by um, the Diversity Lab, and what it does is it allows big law firms or law firms in general to become Mansfield certified. And they become certified when 30% of the candidates that they consider for promotion, for uh, leadership roles at the firm, that kind of stuff, are diverse candidates. Um, They currently look at gender diversity, racial diversity, and LGBTQ plus uh, folks. Um, In next year's ranking, they will also consider and talk about um, disability um, diversity as well. But this year we have 64 firms that have been um, Mansfield certified uh, compared to, which is the second year of the ranking, which is pretty good. Uh, Last year there were 41 firms that were certified and uh, a hefty percentage of those 64 firms are actually Mansfield certified plus, which means that there's actually 30% or more of diverse candidates in a bunch of different metrics in terms of leadership. But I mean... I don't know how what you think about the Mansfield rule generally, mm-hmm. um, but my sense from talking and, and thinking about diversity in firms for quite a while now is that it's a good thing. It's certainly a good thing. Mm-hmm. Nothing bad about it. But yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure that it's a. I'm not sure that it's it's a magic bullet that's going to change the industry. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to some of the discussion that was prompted after Paul Weiss released their list of new partners, uh, and which was a perfectly fine list, uh, but it was accompanied by a picture that showed it was a bunch of white guys and one white woman. And diversity was present there. There were a number of LGBTQ people on that list, but it isn't shown in that image. And it's more the mm-hmm. image than uh, that you know sparked criticism than even who got promoted. But on that, and I tried to make that clear when we wrote about it, but in the aftermath of that, there was a lot of discussion of how law firm diversity efforts operate. And Paul Weiss actually is one of the 
one of the leaders uh, recognized by Microsoft, for, for instance, does a roundup of the attorneys they work with that they feel are doing the best on diversity efforts. And Paul Weiss is usually is always a leader on that. But one of the issues that then the New York Times explored questioned whether this was right. There's been some pushback from Paul Weiss about how accurate this article was. But one argument made in the article was that these sorts of rules have created situations that make it harder for people to actually move up because you end up in a situation where diverse lawyers are put on teams but only for the sake of satisfying these rules, which mean they end up always being on teams and rather than leading things and that that causes a problem. And Mm -hmm. the argument also was that there's a bottlenecking at the mentor level that happens as a few people move up and are always there. They're asked to take on as mentors tons of other people and folks fall through the cracks, which was an interesting argument about how diversity efforts have to be thought out more than just a superficial level, which I would mm-hmm. think is a thing we should have all hoped would be where we end up. But it's a question of whether or not the Mansfield rule, while a good first step, may actually be one of those superficial first steps that shouldn't be the end all of the discussion. For sure. And I recently did a, a podcast with um, Andrea Kramer and Al Harris, who wrote a book about It's Not You, It's the Workplace, about gender discrimination in the workplace. And one of the things they said about the Mansfield rule was that it's great, but it needs to be much bigger. We need to be thinking about diversity, not just when we're talking about promoting to partner or figuring out who's going to be the managing partner of a law firm, but rather when we're doing summer associate hiring, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, kind of started from the very beginning because you're going to wind up in situations like Paul Weiss found themselves last year where in that particular year, there's just not a lot of diversity when they're trying to make those partnership jump. And what are you going to do if... If you never you didn't hire in the first instance, or, or at least diverse diversity in that instance, there were sure. there sure. there, yeah, there yeah. were different vectors of diversity, and mm-hmm. they only kind of had one. Yeah, and I think that that's actually something. And the Mansfield rule in the diversity lab is really working on improving the rule every year and changing it and making it more responsive to I think what the industry needs and what it's looking for. You know, when this year was the second year, they added the LGBTQ plus component to it. Next year, they're adding uh, disability, but. Also, there's a pilot program that five firms have signed on for where they're going to be tracking and looking at all of that 30% rule, but in all of the different categories. So right mm-hmm. now, if you had you know, 30% were LGBTQ, then you would satisfy the rule, but you may have zero di- ethnically di- or racially diverse candidates that mm-hmm. you're looking at. Um, and so this kind of much more strict version of the program that they're starting to investigate would look at how many in each of these categories, how many, how much gender diversity do you have? How many LGBTQ people are you interviewing? How many racially diverse candidates are you considering? How many, you know, disability diverse candidates are you considering for each of of these promotions and and other things? Which I think that is certainly much more difficult to achieve, but is also I think incredibly important when we're really trying to figure out what the legal profession will look like in ten, twenty years from now. Yeah, and it. One quirk of it uh, that a recent article pointed out was that the way origination credit works mm-hmm. has created something of a siloing effect within firms. And so even as these in-house departments, which have really been leading on a lot of this push, for good reason, in-house departments are part of corporate America, which has felt the pressure 
to do more for diversity much longer than law firms have. Mm -hmm. And so these in-house departments working very hard have demanded more diversity on the outside counsel teams that they employ. Problem is, it's starting to create situations in these, according to this article, where there's a little bit more siloing of the people who fit and become a team that only works on these cases because that's what this client demands and so on, which is kind of defeating the purpose of the yeah. whole uh, the whole effort. And, and let's be let's be clear: origination credit is probably a screwed up way for all of your compensation to come from, right? Um, I know that's kind of how law firms have done it since time immemorial, but that doesn't necessarily make it a good thing. Uh, one of the things that Law.com pointed out in that article is that frequently in-house counsel will have contacts that they deal with every day and when they actually yeah. have asked to see who gets the origination credit for their work, it's someone that they have never actually met. Right. Because once you get that client in the door, all the rest of the, whether or not you're relevant or whether or not that client even cares about you anymore, they are still getting the origination credit as long yeah. as you're at that firm. So a white male partner may have brought the client in originally, they now demand a more diverse team. They only work with this diverse team that is kind of the day-to-day, mm-hmm. -day, this, the, the this is the 10 people they work mm -hmm. with in order to satisfy those rules. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, the person who's getting the largest paycheck remains the white guy who brought in the client in the first place. Right, which, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, right now we have a very robust lateral partner market. Yeah. And I think that that is something that that's part of it, right? Which is when partners, whatever, any kind of partner feels like they're doing the majority of the work for a client, the majority of the service, and are not getting the lion's share of the payday for that work, you know, then there's motivation potentially to move and to go somewhere where they can get the credit for that client that would potentially move with them. And I think that's part of the reason why you see so much um, movement, you know, in, in that market. Yeah. And this is, this is a difficult thing for us to report on always because we don't really you know, it's hard to see inside the inner workings mm -hmm. of a law firm because, you know, it, we're We we're do not, not work there. <laughs> we do not work there. But it's also that unlike corporate America, this is not a company that has to make public filings. Mm -hmm. And for this reason, it's hard sometimes to tell what's going on within these firms. But we occasionally hear from tipsters, which is the only way we get news, really. So Tips at AboveTheLaw.com. Correct. Send things there. We hear sometimes stories, and it's hard to confirm and so on, which is why even if we don't report on them, don't lose faith. We're still logging them. We just... Mm -hmm. Can't and, do much. and also tips are super important to for us to track trends within the industry. Correct. And, you know, we keep them anonymous, so we can't really report on things without getting a lot more confirmation. But it's not unusual for me to hear from tipsters that XYZ firm, you know, check out their office in, insert city here, Dallas, let's say. Check out their Dallas office, and if you go over a long enough timeline, you'll see that eight female partners have left over the last three years mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. And those are the sorts of things that you can't necessarily see in the plot point, but you can really understand when you take a step back and somebody's telling you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these firms, laterals, some lateral moves, a lot of good firms will send out the press release saying, oh, we picked up this person from somewhere. Others, you know, they go unnoticed. And so these movements, unless you're, set up something to track every firm's website every day, you're not going to see some of this right. movement. 
you're looking at me without saying anything, so I'll move on from that, I guess. Um, wow, you're just freezing up in a weird, weird way. I'm not freezing up. I just, you know, I think that diversity in law firms is not something that's going to be solved anytime soon, and I think that there's a lots of reasons for that. I also think that more diverse people and women tend to opt out of law firm life at a certain point. Mm. There was a recent study about uh, some was in a report about uh, women bread uh, women lawyers who are breadwinners. I did a podcast about it and one of the the data points they had there was that less than something like half of women who are senior associates are looking forward to the prospect of being partner. Yeah. Whereas like for men, it's like 80% or something like that. Yeah. I don't remember the exact numbers, but you, sort of the enthusiasm to become a partner was much higher amongst men than it is women. And part of it's because of the increased expectations, the feeling yeah. that it's not going to actually get better. Maybe you'll make a little bit more money, especially as a junior partner or a non-equity partner. Oftentimes you don't make more money or you make yeah. slightly more money, not as much as the amount of time you have to dedicate to being a partner. And it's not something, There's they have a lot of other pressures on them and other responsibilities and being a partner is not that brass ring that everyone's going for anymore. And that's an excellent point, the de-equitization mm-hmm. price process. The way in which we have several firms who set it up where you're a quote-unquote partner, but you really aren't a partner, you are a higher-paid employee. And that puts all the pressure that used to be a junior partnership with none of the leverage of saying that you actually own a stake of mm-hmm. the institution. That is a huge problem, but it's also one that that kind of triggers, if you are in that position, the blessing is that you get to have the title partner, even if that isn't what you're making, and you can use that to market yourself and build out business and so on. But now that's more on you. You now have to become something of the free agent, utilizing that, not just doing your legal work that you have to do as a what would be a junior partner, but also considering lateral markets, considering uh, building books outside of the pre-established platforms Mm -hmm. business in order to try and fight your way to a point where you can get there. And I do think that you're right. I can understand how that would be a less attractive prospect these days. Mm -hmm. Especially oftentimes when a lot of times women are also responsible for the majority of their home responsibilities Mm -hmm. as well. So you're you're just kind of, it's just bad on top of worse. I mean, one of the other things you were saying, too, is about how a lot of this pressure is coming from in-house lawyers and Mm -hmm. from clients to increase diversity on teams. But let's also be clear that it's not great in corporate America, whether or not they felt these pressures for longer. You know, everything's not great. I mean, there was a recent study um, about general counsel pay trends, which said that the pay gap for general counsels at – Fortune 500 companies is actually getting worse. <laughs> yeah. For the last couple of years, um, when they did this study, the pay gap between men and women has been about 11%. And now it's, eight, this year, it was 18.6%. Yeah. So, so it's not really getting better. And and obviously, you know, all these companies are making these payment decisions on based on individuals that they're hiring or promoting or whatnot. So it's not saying that any one person's doing a bad job per se, but when you look at trends and you look at the overall market and the fact that it had been pretty steady at 11% for a few years and now has jumped to over 18% is not encouraging. Yeah, no, it's definitely a trend that uh, seems as though it's a step backwards. One would hope, though, that over time, 
One thing about little blips like that is we do have to wonder if that is a blip or if it's actually part of the trend. And we'll, so we're going to have to wait another couple of years to see if this returns to the norm but or mm-hmm. gets better. Because one would think that it would get better over time. It's not like it's not like these efforts are going to result in women running legal departments of Fortune 500 companies tomorrow, but they begin a career path that puts them in a position eight, nine, ten, eight years down the road to be considered for those sorts of roles. So one would hope that we're over a long enough timeline moving in a different direction. One issue that comes up and came up today in an article is ranking systems. And we have several of them of various ranges of quality uh, from <laughs> from pay to play. Hey, I'm a mega lawyer because I paid mega lawyer to name me a mega <laughs> lawyer uh, to institutions that actually take the time to consider lawyers and their portfolios to determine if they deserve certain accolades. Our you know, colleague in arms, uh, Vivian Chen, wrote an article over at American Lawyer about how uh, chambers actually disproportionately, at least if you looked at the population, honors men with a lot of their accolades for leadership in the field. Now, part of that is, of course, diversity efforts are relatively young and mm-hmm. therefore elderly partners are more mostly likely to going be to be, yeah, more likely to be. Sure. Yeah. But is there something to that and some reason why these rankings institutions should start pulling back and considering the future trends, especially like, well, let's just say that. Um, Is there an obligation upon these rankings institutions to put thumbs on the scale to make sure that they're giving proper accolades to more diverse sets of lawyers? I mean, I think, of course. Uh, But, you know, I'm not one that has to be convinced about the value and necessity for diversity in pretty much every aspect of the legal profession. But I think that there's this myth of some pure meritocracy that exists Mm -hmm. in the country and world, but in particular in the legal profession that, well, we're just talking about the really great people. Whoever they are, they are. And if it's just a bunch of white men, so be it. And I think that that is incredibly naive and short-sighted way to look at who's accomplished in the legal profession or any profession, frankly. And I, I do think that, you know, a well-rounded, meaningful set of rankings will absolutely include things like diversity when they're making those determinations because a diverse set of, if these are our top-ranked lawyers and our thing, you should want them to be a diverse set. Right. And what I'd argue with that is, additionally, you've got to step back in any sort of endeavor it's important to take a step back and understand why you're engaged in it. Mm -hmm. It's a thing with this podcast we never do. (laughs) Why are we even talking? But with with real issues, you take a step back and you say, what's the purpose of a ranking system? And theoretically, the ranking system is there to inform clients on who they should be hiring. If you believe that that is what the ranking system is for, then there is no logic to this just give it to the same people always, especially in an era where more and more of these in-house institutions are looking for more diversity in who they bring on as outside counsel. If that's the mandate that's out there, then a ranking system that is doing its job for the client, which is the companies out there trying to look up a lawyer, they have an obligation to be giving more credit to 
folks who could fulfill those corporate missions. Mm -hmm. Because if the company's looking to hire a diverse lawyer, then the ranking system should show them, here are diverse lawyers who are actually experts in the fields that you're interested in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> but uh, but to your point, well, you were like that. You were very polite about like the which does isn't how this podcast operates. But you were very polite <laughs> about the oh, there's some myth of meritocracy. They, no, they're they're whining a lie people. Of meritocracy. They're, yeah, there's whining people who like well, but but I did my thing. It's like sure, but that's not what people are trying to hire. The clients are looking for different kinds of lawyers now, and to that extent. These ranking institutions have an obligation to show you what's out there that's different. Anyway, so that's the rankings discussion I would like to think, unless you have something else to say. No, that's pretty good. So where do our favorite punching, arguably our favorite punching bag around here, where do law schools fit into this equation? What <laughs> what can they be doing better? I mean, law schools are not doing an awful job about the in terms of the pipeline at least mm-hmm. if you're looking at legal academia legal education generally for a while now more than half of the starting 1Ls have been women right you know they are doing better and better every year on other measures of diversity as well i don't think that as an institution they're doing a terrible job but i'm not sure that they're doing a, and this is just kind of a criticism i guess about legal education generally preparing them for what it's like to be mm-hmm. a lawyer. I mean, law school doesn't really prepare you to be a lawyer in a lot right. of ways, right? But I think that that, that uh, distinction between what you learn and how you have to be in law school to big law, for example, is even more stark for yeah. some more disenfranchised populations than it might be for people who have been privileged their entire lives. Well, this is always an argument that you hear when, and to bring up a, now a controversial topic to the extent that you and I are on opposite sides of it, this is the argument that comes up constantly when we talk about the California State Bar, mm-hmm. a notoriously difficult bar, one that you've, most people fail. This bar exam, whenever there's a discussion, often led by the law schools themselves, to lower the cut score to allow more people to pass the bar every year, people freak out and play, oh, you know, it was good enough for them. Well, what's wrong with you? You're just terrible students. Sometimes a higher level argument, and the one that I think you and Ellie have made before, is that this is actually just a tail wagging the dog of how law schools lowered their standards over a series of years, and therefore students who were never really cut out to be lawyers are now coming up, and that we shouldn't put our thumb on the scale to help that out. Well, I mean, whether or not you think the cut score should be lowered, yeah. there's certainly something to that argument, right? That, sure. That I mean, as a, a matter of statistics, it's pretty clear that the the GPAs, the LSAT scores have decreased, particularly after 2009, right? Right. So, you know, it is the average entering 1L class is, is at, at a lot of law schools is not as qualified as it once was. And if that has some impact on the overall ability for that class to pass the bar, well, I'm not sure that the, the, cha- the answer is to change the test. I mean, is it more difficult than the other bar exams in this country? Of course. I mean, there's yeah. only one other state is worse, right? Delaware. Right. Uh, you know, that is all true. And maybe there's something to be said for a uniform bar exam. Well, I mean, the uniform <laughs> bar exam 
Well, is, uniforms grading system, perhaps. Yeah, right. Uh, that, that's more the more issue. More accurate, yeah. yeah. And, and that, that's an argument to be had, but you can't pretend that some of the dire numbers that people tout about the failure rates of the California bar are not at least partially because of the lowered uh, yeah. entrance standards. Well, and then the, the way this ties into our overall topic is that when the law deans filed with the court, uh, the Supreme Court in California, about changing the cut score, a lot of their argument rested on many of the diverse and people of color who are going through law school were going to law schools that had worse pass rates. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, they did not have pass rates that, you know, obviously some students don't pass, but they they pointed to the number of them that had pass rates that would mean they would be members of the New York bar, but weren't members of California because of this artificial protective measure. And the point was, you don't have to lower standards to the point where, you know, people who aren't qualified to be lawyers get to be lawyers. But New York, also a pretty important jurisdiction, has a cut score. And if what you're doing is by and large disproportionately cutting out people of color who tend to go, at least in California, to some of these other schools that are, you know, they have a bunch of schools in California. So some of these schools are are majority. Yeah, Yeah. some they have that are California schools rather than ABA schools. But putting all that aside, there a higher proportion of minority uh, law students in California go to these schools that are not you know, the ones you necessarily think of, but nonetheless are doing the work and passing the bar if it were New York, but just aren't passing it because of this California tax, basically, Mm -hmm. of making it harder to get in. And their argument is that that, therefore, makes this fundamentally a discriminatory policy. And I kind of buy that. I feel like I'm opposed to the California bars system because I think that the New York bar is a perfectly acceptable one and they're just trying to be protectionist. But when this filing came in that said, indeed, the margin between those two, the delta between those two of who's getting cut out then is disproportionately discriminatory, I thought was a big problem. Mm -hmm. And this pays back into the whole issue. You know, you can't have a more diverse profession if there aren't people getting into the profession who are more diverse. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that is certainly that is certainly accurate, and, and that argument does make a lot of sense. But I also think that, um, and I think it's getting better now because the amount of applicants into law school is increasing, mm-hmm. so um, law schools aren't quite as desperate to fill seats. But there was also a time where I think that a bunch of schools were somewhat predatory, trying to get yeah. low-information people to be lawyers or to go to law school, telling them all this money that they're going to make on the back end. But it was highly unlikely, given that yep. school's reputation, that school's ranking, that school's ability to get you to pass the bar for even the best of students there. So, I mean, I think that both of those things are true, right? right. And, you know, we can hold multiple somewhat contradictory yes. thoughts in our heads. And that, and that actually gets to part of the problem with this California situation from my perspective because I believe the ABA for years was just rubber stamping law schools who were mm-hmm. doing a bad job. And part of that was they were letting law schools keep going even though people wouldn't pass the bar and just taking money from folks who weren't going to pass the bar. So in California, I believe that's supercharged because, of course, the bar is too hard and people right. don't pass. And so mm-hmm. they're supercharged putting people in a bad place. But I do think the ABA, uh, who a few years ago started stepping up and actually caring about institutions that were doing poor, this, yeah, having rates. this poor pass rates, and unfortunately for them, what happened in response was those schools hired 
Paul Clement to sue on their behalf, and the poor ABA who doesn't have the wherewithal to defend itself financially had to ultimately, or, or at least allegedly, we don't know what the problem is. Let's just say they folded like Superman on laundry day uh, <laughs> as soon as these suits started happening and started agreeing, well, I guess you get to keep your accreditation rather than do the job that they are actually assigned by the government to do, which is accredit these places. That's problematic, too, because that, like you said, that's that's where the problem is for me, not the California bar. That's where you have institutions that know that they're churning out students who get a 43% pass rate on the bar exam or whatever, yet nonetheless, they're pocketing that money. That's where an accreditation organization should step in and make a change, not by artificially moving around the bar exam scores. That's fair. And I think that's that's kind of my concern on that. But yeah. So these are all problems over the long term of how we address this. Have we solved this problem? Absolutely not. (laughs) Uh, There is no chance that we did. But we did have a discussion about some of the major themes in diversity. If you're interested in hearing more about diversity in the legal profession, Catherine hosts her own podcast called The Jabot, which focuses specifically on these issues uh, and comes out periodically. It um, it comes out... Reasonably frequently. Yeah, reasonably frequently. Yeah. You're not like us where it's like every week. But no, no, no. Yeah. We're, well, theoretically, there are two of you to shoulder that load. I know that that's fair. the reality might be a little bit different, yes. but in theory. That, yeah, and that's why you're here. But, um, <laughs> so I actually do two podcasts. It's right, reality. exactly. So you do one and a half podcasts. <laughs> but yeah, so if you're interested, that's, that's the Jabot. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You should be ranking and writing reviews of this podcast so that you can uh, help us move up and conquer the podcast services algorithm that says, if you type in the word law, do we come up first? If not, that's because you should be giving us stars and reviews. You should be listening, obviously, to the Jabot. You should be listening to the other Legal Talk Network offerings of a panoply of podcasts out there that you can listen to that all deal with law. You should be reading Above the Law. You should be following us on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice. She's at Catherine One. And with all of that, I think I've said everything I need to. Bye. All right. Bye, all. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.